Behavior Council is a joint production of Multnomah University, Alternative Behavioral Therapy, and New Pattern Counseling. Welcome to Smart Council. Smart Council is a podcast dedicated to clinicians and students for spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. Today, we're going to be talking about human growth and development with Katie Ledbury. Uh, this question came up, um, my students brought it up, and it was a really good question, I thought, um, as we were going through uh, a stage theory, and I was going over, here's what this stage is, uh, it was Erickson stage, and... Um, here's how he theorizes that people grow and here's all the life stage crises and all the ways you can fail it and all the clinical <laughs> implications that come out of it and all the problems that come out of it and, and they're looking up at me they're like okay so you get an adult who's like failed six out of seven of Erickson stages what do you do then and it, that's really depressing because you can't go back and fix it and I was thinking to myself She's right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so this is a question that I'm processing through my, for myself. And since I have this podcast, I have like this built-in process group for myself for all things clinical. <laughs> so uh, it's, a question, it's a question I don't have formulated answers to coming into the episode. Uh, but I am feeling very empowered to just process it out for whoever's listening along with Josh and Katie. Um, so this is going to be an interesting session. This will be a very interesting yeah. session as we hash out our ideas and kind of develop them right in front of you for your listening pleasure. Yeah. So. We won't stand by anything that we say during this half hour. Absolutely yeah. not. <laughs> so, but uh, now that I've talked to a whole bunch, uh, Josh and or Katie, um, what do you think? So I'm asking, why do we teach human growth and development? And I almost wonder if some of this conversation could be framed in some of the larger conversation that we might study. You know, why do we study history? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's history classes, history majors, um, historical monuments. You know, uh, as of the day when we're recording this, like we are still embroiled <laughs> in a national we, we, conversation, <laughs> and I'll use that word loosely, about uh, Confederate monuments. Right. And, what do we do with these items? We have this belief that if we learn history, we won't repeat it. Mm-hmm. This this belief that somehow we won't repeat it if we learn it. Right. Or this belief <laughs> that if we remove the landmarks, the specific stone landmarks, that we will forget it. Or Which, or behavioral change or... Right. Mm-hmm. Or And then there's a difference between are we merely remembering history or are we also celebrating it also? And there, there's that whole thing. Um, and so... All that to say, you know, history, as much as we may have disliked it in, in high school, uh, we can see history matters. It, it matters to us. We're, we're historical beings. We have a context. We have a history. We have an ancestry. Uh, we come from somewhere. Um, why is it important to study that? My brain goes to is history and why that's important as a clinician to go back and not only learn, but also constantly review what other psychologists have looked through and what people have learned about humans and the human condition and mental health overall. 
I think as you do that, you build upon it. And so every time you go back and look at something or even at the very beginning of being a therapist or going into a counseling program and getting a degree is you're setting building blocks for how you conceptualize the client and how you conceptualize healing and how you conceptualize mental health. Um, I think as you build upon that, you definitely like you, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are certain things that are always going to be, um, valuable from each person's research, from each person's theory and each person's approach to, um, the process of healing. Um, and I think on top of that, there is a dynamic of like, as you go through and look at each theory and each person and things like human growth and development, there is a component of you're teaching yourself how to think clinically and think in terms of psychology. It's the, it's the same thing I tell teenage clients. You need to learn math, not because you're going to use it in everyday life beyond adding and subtracting and flipping out a calculator, but because it teaches you how to learn and it teaches you how to problem solve. And so I think some of that reigns true in learning things like Erickson's theories that maybe some of it isn't applicable to today and isn't applicable to every culture or every ethnicity or gender or whatever else, but there are pieces of it that are going to click in your brain when you're trying to conceptualize the person in front of you and click in your brain in helping them heal that you're going to be like, oh yeah, that's totally like it ties into what Erickson was saying. So I'm going to take that piece and I'm going to insert it into where we're headed right now. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. my first thought. Might be my only thought. Making sure I'm hearing you. So, Mm -hmm. so you're looking at the, the discipline and we can call it a discipline Mm -hmm. of studying the history of a person is a further extension of uh, looking at the whole person and, and that is, that's, that's a way of thinking clinically about a person is not just here's the UIC in this here and now moment but I recognize that you are a person that exists in time and you've existed in other times and forms and other places that uh, may still be having an impact on you. Yeah. And I think, like, so definitely doing that with person to person, that, mm-hmm. like, your history has an impact on where you are now and what tools and what uh, mm-hmm. strengths that you can build upon to continue towards healing. And I think when it comes to, like, learning about theory is then you can take those pieces of things that you already know and insert them into where you're headed with a client or how you treat them or how you assist them in getting to where they want to go. And some of that is saying like, well, when you like, let's talk about the fact that you were five and this happened in your home or Mm -hmm. the fact that this thing was missing in this relationship or whatever the actual piece is, but Mm -hmm. inserting that into, okay, well, if we know that's a deficit, then what do we do to gain that skill or to adapt Mm -hmm. to the next step? So do you tap into different toolboxes? Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I always think about too, you know, knowing what is normal helps you normalize your clients. Yep. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. and the normal is going to be different for every client. Yes. Every client has their own normal. Mm-hmm. You know what that is. Which is you. which is in, in lies the the problem with teaching human growth and development. Uh, <laughs> there's these stages and these patterns, uh, and then there's all the people outside of them. Which mm-hmm. the more I encounter humans, I discover them. There's uh, to contradict Byron Taylor. Uh, there, are, <laughs> there are actually quite a few ways that we are different from each other. Uh, yeah. That are quite significant. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So Byron's original saying, which I, I love, is you know we're more like than we are different. Which I still believe that. I still believe that on some yeah. level, but but then we're also very different. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, Byron, forgive me. So I'm thinking about um, maybe taking a step 
beneath um, the, the human growth and development theories and just thinking about um, people growing up and thinking uh, of, of history, uh, personal history. And a lot of how I understand this has been shaped by learning about the brain, um, reading Dan Siegel's The Developing Mind uh, has you know, been a life-changing book for me. It's a, you know, I read about you know how how the brain works, and suddenly I understand myself, and I say, "Oh my gosh, I'm avoiding attached." Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, it was a life changing book for me. But um, we're we're embodied beings, and our and our bodies um, go through this process. Our our brains, in particular, go through this process of taking in stimuli and data, mm-hmm. and filing and organizing it, and creating mental schema around it. And there are some neurodevelopmental things that occur on. Q, yeah. Typically, with with exceptions, uh, but mm-hmm. but there is the frontal cortex that start, starts pruning at puberty. Mm-hmm. Um, there are parts of the brain that develop at certain stages, mm-hmm. and those to some degree have to influence and interact with the stages of human growth and development that we mm-hmm. um, that we are talking about in school. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we mentioned that. There's some differences between different cultural groups and mm-hmm. potentially even just the past and the present. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a fascination and interest with what, what's the neurodevelopmental part and how does that interact with what we think we know about development. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, no answers yet. Right. <laughs> yeah, but I, very I, interesting. Yeah. Sure. Very fascinating. <laughs> Neurobiology is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because it's this invisible thing that's going on around us and we can't escape it. It, mm-hmm. it is us in a way. Uh, and so I'm thinking about, um, you know, an infant who is, you know, experiencing internal stimuli of, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm in the dark, I'm waking up hungry and tired and wet in the dark, and I'm crying, and uh, is someone predictably coming to suit me or, or not? And, and in that, I'm learning. And the, the learning that I do, which I'm not quite able to, con- I'm not able to, at six months to consciously process that, but that is also going to shape my framework for how I trust and engage in intimate relationships for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like knowing that that is part of one's history, um, I think, I feel like it's good to know that because when I, you know, encounter the, you know, the 23, 42 year old person who is unable to trust or is always scared or is always anxious in relationships, um, it's helpful to know that, that that didn't happen for no reason, um, but that, yeah, there was uh, at least a mild form of, of neglect mm-hmm. or different parenting choices at, at six months. It's mm-hmm. uh, generous. Probably <laughs> generous. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind. Yeah. yeah. Um, or I'm thinking about um, another client interaction I've had where... Um, you know, the client was working through some variation of, I don't believe that uh, I'm, I'm worthwhile, I don't believe I'm capable of anything, very low self-image. Um, and, you know, there's some things in the present that we can do, like cognitive disciplines, challenging core beliefs, uh, getting external affirmation, engaging in activities that increase your efficacy, self-efficacy. Um, but, but then sometimes... Um, those surface, those current things seem to fall short a little bit. And so sometimes it seems helpful to be able to go back to, okay, so what's the core root of this? Where did this come from? You know, what was the, and I'm going to wax narrative therapy here for a second, but what's the story that was written for you that you're believing? And with this particular client, we are able to trace it back to, yeah, like as a two or three-year-old, like um, their, their needs were not ever 
validated or they were, it was communicated to them that they were not welcome, they were not appreciated, they were considered, you know, less than in some way. And for this client, it was, you know, that was, that was the story being written that this client now lives into mm-hmm. and, and, and still lives into today. Um, and so I feel like, for me, like knowing that bit of history uh, gives me a clue as to say, okay, so that's, that's an area of life to, to go back over and to process. And that's, that's, the, that's the crucial part of the story to, to be rewritten or reframed or, or directly contradicted. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in that sense, in the, in the long term, where did your worldview come from? I feel like knowing a person's history is, is really important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the insight piece is not only helpful as the clinician in the room to be able to take that and be like, oh, here we are, like, and connect it back to where you would see as a an area of like, oh, that's definitely something we need to process. But I think for clients in a process of healing, there is a dynamic of when we have insight into our own lives and hence us nerding out about books and then reflecting on our own lives as even as therapists, there is a dynamic of like, if, if I have insight into where that came from, that I'm more likely going to actually shift what I am thinking. If you're doing cognitive behavioral or whatever else, and you've said in all of these other things and all of these dynamics and positive thinking patterns and like overcoming specific barriers, I think it kind of comes down to that same concept of having that insight gives them even more catalyst into that movement because they can pinpoint, okay, so there was something that was out of my control and was a significant need or whatever else it was that went unmet. And so what does that now look like and it's not to go back and like necessarily in every situation we have to spend a whole lot of time on it but sometimes just making that connection will be catalyst enough for them to be able to shift and or begin shifting those things in a way that they haven't been able to before right right yeah you can definitely give you some cognitions to work with Mm -hmm. yeah Um, you know whether they're phrases or sensations or Mm -hmm. um, but definitely give you something to work with Mm -hmm. yeah maybe that would have gone um unconnected without doing history Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and I think as far as like from the therapist side I think the reason we go down certain uh certain hallways or certain paths when we are looking for those things in history I think is because we sat in a class and we learned about human growth and development or we sat in a class and learned about a specific stage and it may not be that it's like specifically when they were Mm two-year-olds that that would have fit into whatever category, but we're searching for similar concepts. And so I think that kind of to bring it back a little bit to human growth and development, there is a piece that I think becomes applicable when it is like where our brain is going. We, we have that information already. And so we're pulling it in order to kind of Mm -hmm. figure out the missing pieces in the conversation with our clients. Mm -hmm. So thinking about, thinking about studying history versus developmental theory mm-hmm. um, versus biology. Um, so I'm, I'm seeing a couple of different threads, a couple yeah. of different layers here. So, so we can study just the, the biological development of a person mm-hmm. and you know, we could throw, throw the brain in, in that category. You know, mm-hmm. How does the brain develop? How does, mm-hmm. um, how does attachment develop? Because attachments are very much a, a neurobiological thing. Mm-hmm. Um, along with, you know, how, how do your bones and muscles develop? How do your sexual organs develop? How, mm-hmm. did, how, does, the, how does the physical body develop? That's, that's definitely one layer. Um, 
uh, and then they when I put the body and the brain potentially on different layers unfortunately I, I won't contradict you there no, uh, I'm not proud I'm not excited about it yeah. <laughs> it just makes it more complex than I want it to be I, uh, <laughs> the complexity I embrace that um, but so so you have the body you have the brain mm-hmm. uh, you might even be able to say the personality is yet a different layer off of that um, but then there's the the whole I'm also a societal cultural being too mm-hmm. and uh, I, li- I, I exist as a being in relationship to others, in relationship to community, in a social, cultural context. And then there's that whole layer of everything that's happening all around us, too. So, so, <laughs> we'll edit this part. <laughs> um, humans are complex. Humans are complex, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I, know, I know one of the things I was thinking was... I guess more more in the history part, and not yet on the, not yet on the theory part. Mm-hmm. And as the person themselves is growing, it's you know helpful to know the history. What kind of care did you did you receive? What kind of environment did you grow up into? Um, and then I think I'm thinking about like what's been your experience of trauma, or what's been your experience of privilege, or what's been your experience of like what's what's been normalized for you. You know, talking about each client has their individual normal. Um, yeah, there's a. There, there is a normal too with some degree of dysfunction when you're talking about a disorder. Mm-hmm. You can feel out of normal. You're like, oh, this is normal for this disorder, which, mm-hmm. which is different than yeah. saying this is normal. Right. Um, but it can feel really true, especially if, if you're an experienced therapist. You're like, oh yeah, this is normal, and you can say that like with, without any without losing any integrity. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like, yeah, I see this all the time. <laughs> yeah, and, and this, is, this is a normal reaction to that. Yeah, um, it's not a healthy reaction, but it, it is a normal reaction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, yeah. even even some. Uh, fairly bizarre symptoms or experiences or mm-hmm. uh, those are normal mm-hmm. um, you know it says something about potentially your history or that can be traced back to something that looks like mm-hmm. this which you probably will not tell your client mm-hmm. um, but you'll you'll know something they don't know uh, by being able to kind of reverse mm-hmm. you know the process yeah. in your head yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you can have normal within a particular dysfunction spectrum yes um, which doesn't necessarily mean good or healthy or optimal. No. Um, but, but still within, within a range of some sort. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about a, a story that I tell in my class of uh, this other story I read, and for the life of me, I can't, I haven't been able to ever find it exactly, but I, but I, but I heard the story of someone who was interviewing a child who had grown up in um, one of the African countries where there was lots of war. And they were talking about their childhood as, yeah, like every day we went to school, we had to like sneak past, tiptoe around mines and sneak past uh, snipers, and we never had enough to eat, and there were bombs going off every night. And their last comment was, yeah, so I, so I had a normal childhood. Yes. <laughs> and then I'm thinking, Your clients will say this. Right. Yeah. 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 Thinking, a, wow. And B, so contrast that with, say, your average, you know, suburban white kid who grows up on a farm in Kansas. And, you know, their concept of normal is going to be, you know, vastly different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is one experience better than another? Well, that's maybe a conversation for a different time. But I, but I, but I do feel like it's, it's important to recognize. So, um, you are not acting the way you are in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you did grow up where it was normal to have bombs going off all around you. Or maybe you did grow up in an environment where it was normalized to experience a lot of abuse of various sorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe you did grow up in an environment where all of your basic needs were covered, but you were held to ridiculously high performance standards. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Well, and it, it is worth saying that um, everyone grows up believing that they are normal until they realize they're not. Yeah. And, and, and that may sound like a cop-out answer, but a lot of clients will come in and really genuinely believe that they have a normal childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's some risk in that because in your office, talking about it, saying I'm normal, and then also stating the abuse out loud, um, that bubble can break all on its own. <laughs> And yeah. it's not necessarily safe when it breaks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not always. <laughs> not always safe. Uh, and, uh, and it doesn't require you poking and prodding for it to break. Mm-hmm. It just requires them to hear their own voice saying mm-hmm. out loud what happened. Mm-hmm. And sometimes even them saying, and it was normal, they'll, they'll put it together on their own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They'll put it together that it wasn't... It wasn't normal. Yeah. <laughs> or it wasn't normal or it wasn't good. Uh, well, wasn't normal, wasn't good. Basically, that they didn't have an average normal childhood. Mm, okay. um, but, but there is no exception to that rule. Um, sexual abuse survivors will say that in your office. Mm-hmm. They will say, I had a normal childhood, mm-hmm. even if they were sexually abused by relatives in the, in the house. Mm-hmm. They, they will say that. Yeah. <laughs> until, and they will believe that until they don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and it happens much later than most people expect. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. They don't even know why you're in, they're in your office. They don't know why they need counseling. Mm-hmm. They're not sure why they have the behaviors they have right. yeah. or the feelings that they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, that would be... Well, I remember that from like when I went through my counseling process and I had to reflect on you know, my childhood, mm-hmm. um, which I, in a lot of ways was really great in a lot of ways. I had a lot of you know, safety, a lot of security, a lot of things. And, and there were some other problems and some issues. And... Um, like a major piece of work that I did with my therapist was you know being able to like you know look at, look at my parents as less than superheroes and mm-hmm. look at you know some of these you know really idyllic experiences or experiences that I had idealized and say oh wait those actually were flawed in some serious ways and mm-hmm. you know to kind of come out of my my normal bubble and recognize oh wait there's people who live differently than me and it's okay and there were some problems with how I grew up. Which a is at first at first is alarming, but then it becomes kind of okay because you realize and I can pick up the pieces and restructure and move on um, with lots of work and lots of support and lots of coffee. Um, so and breaking the family rules won't get you in trouble when you're 30 years old. Never, never. <laughs> no adverse effects there. Yeah, right, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so, so, so I know for me, I, I think I'm definitely landing on the side that yeah, it's important to study history. Mm-hmm. It's important to know a client's uh, personal history um, for for a lot of the reasons we've talked about, knowing their context, mm-hmm. knowing what was their normal, do they still need to you know come out of that, um, knowing what their context is, um, knowing what their worldview is, like that. I feel like that's important. Mm-hmm. Um, so so here's I guess where we get to to make make a bit of a leap from knowing an individual's developmental history. Uh, and studying that in session to studying developmental theory in school. Um, and I feel like that may be uh, a related, but, but sort of different topic. So, so, when I, so when I talk about developmental theory, what, what, are, what comes to mind for you two? I think of a lot of the founding theorists like Erickson and Piaget, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I think of a lot of memorization note cards. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or maybe like a, a timeline charts. Mm-hmm. Those come to mind. Timelines, yeah. Yeah, yeah. graphs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Colbert, Fowler. Mm-hmm. Colbert. Colbert, yeah. Colbert, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. For my good old Uncle Fred. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I work, I, work uh, I do a brief review of uh, Maria Montessori's developmental mm-hmm. stages in, yeah. in my class, and um, that's refreshing because it's a woman's perspective, and it's just good. It's always <laughs> nice to have a woman's perspective, always, isn't always, it? Always, uh, <laughs> So, um... Yeah, so so we could talk about theory a little bit. So out of out of all the developmental theorists that often get talked about in a developmental class, um, what are what are some theorists in in their whole theories and or just like a specific theoretical stage that uh, you find helpful, useful, still important enough to teach? Man, I I think I would probably keep teaching them all. Yeah. Um, I know that we. We have some issues with some of them culturally or presently um, because of how things have changed over history. You know, the age of puberty dropping six months every 10 years causes a problem with some of these developmental theorists. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, yes. like uh, a couple of them are getting wonky. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, they're not adding up after, you know, 50 years when, mm-hmm. when the age of puberty's dropped, you know, uh, two, two and a half years. Yeah. Um, gets a little bit weird. And launching has increased over yeah. time. Yeah, adolescence gets longer, mm-hmm. and that just it does. People are living longer, yeah. so now we've got to add another developmental stage. Mm-hmm. You know, immortality right. versus extinction. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're still worth teaching because you never know what the individual is going to gravitate towards when you're teaching mm-hmm. a one-on-one class. Or you're teaching a counseling level class. Do you know whether this person's going to become a psychologist and is going to need to know all of Piaget, mm-hmm. or whether they're going to become a talk therapist and gravitate more towards Erickson's mm-hmm. or Freud? Or, or Adler, um, and that um, it really is basic level for teaching something that they might grab onto and it might be a building block to something else. Mm-hmm. So we give as many launching pads to our students as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had like one neuroscience class and I thought it was brilliant. I wanted like three more. Right. You know, well, I went and took them anyways. But, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, you know, be grateful for, for the, the really intense neuroscience class that uh, my peers hated yeah uh, so um, but yeah it's just a launching pad yeah um, so so I might have to provide a lot of them and um, I think the more we learn the more it helps us see how people's thoughts evolved on mental health over time and that there's a chance that any one of us could contribute to the field in in a way and yeah. learning how other people springboard off of each other mm-hmm. I think can be helpful Mm-hmm. in trying to be the next Dan Single or mm-hmm. uh, Fisher or um, Sternman or whoever else mm-hmm. you want to follow who's blazing new ground. Yeah, mm-hmm. so even apart from the specific work you do with clients, just participating mm-hmm. in, in, our, in our field, mm-hmm. it's helpful to know what's the history, how have counselors, social workers, psychiatrists thought, how do they think 10, 15... How do they build on the ago? common knowledge of their yeah. time? Yeah. Because exactly. that's, that's essentially what some of these people are doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in that sense, it would be pretty arrogant of us, um, especially us who are you know, still a little younger, to say, yeah, we don't need all the history and all the community and you know, our, our professional clinical cloud of witnesses who have done so much work mm-hmm. and so much study to try and understand people and came up with the best understanding we could. Uh, it would be kind of cheap and cool to just throw that out as you know irrelevant, just because you know the language is outdated and the language is very outdated. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe maybe we can teach it with the disclaimers. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. 
have a lot of disclaimers when I teach Freud. <laughs> I, I, I don't doubt it at all. Um, but can you imagine Freud creating something mm-hmm. out of what, what I read feels like nothing? Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. You know, yeah. With no scaffolding to go off of. That's true. Right. And that's, that's what I emphasize with, with him, too. And there's there's so much about his city that we, we, we can legitimately criticize and mm-hmm. almost It's, it's almost easy. Yeah. Yeah. But he thought of all this like with no predecessors virtually no predecessors and he he in very many ways like created our movement Mm -hmm. and uh and set a lot of thoughts and patterns in place which had to be corrected but he got things rolling Mm -hmm. and that's that's worth Mm -hmm. that's worth celebrating a little bit yeah 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 no matter how like defensive and and uh, insecure he really was. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. That's it. Yeah. No, I think there's just a lot of validity to the fact that, like, there are so many offshoots when it comes to theories, and hence there being multiple approaches to treatment. Um, and I think you're right. There is there's a place for learning the the intricacies of each person's approach towards human growth and development and other specific areas of mental health because if if I take a piece of that and I can then bring that to a different conversation that I'm having like I'm going to have the not only am I going to have the same language as whoever I'm talking to in a specific theory or approach but also I'm going to be able to build upon that every single time whether that is just me building upon it in my own head and practice or someone going and building upon that in regards to creating a new theory a new approach or adapting to a new place yeah and I think a lot of uh, a lot of us moving forward in our practice with new Mm -hmm. skills and new behaviors um, there's a lot of unconscious scaffolding happening I'm Mm -hmm. sure yeah you know you know that I, I do a lot of brain treatments and neurofeedback and biofeedback um i think i took maybe seven or eight <laughs> neurophysiology classes before i was like oh i get it yeah the whole thing <laughs> oh, makes sense makes all sense. of a sudden right. you know it was only like seven mm-hmm. classes of feeling overwhelmed yeah and i mean the same class basically mm-hmm. we're learning about you know the anterior cingulate gyrus and what it does and, mm-hmm. um and it just didn't make any sense for the first seven times and then it kind mm-hmm. of clicks and i think mm-hmm. i think sometimes we we have to just keep exposing ourselves to concepts because you might hear something like scaffolding six or seven times before you're realizing, oh, I use scaffolding to understand scaffolding. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's helpful. <laughs> you know? oh, yeah. How that works. <laughs> <For sure>. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, mm-hmm. that you don't know what you need mm-hmm. and you probably won't for a long time and you won't know what you're learning is helpful. And so as students, like, just learn it. Mm-hmm. Just <laughs> it would help it. if there was motivation, but it's not necessarily going to stop yeah. you. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I think it's that concept of like, when you look at your life in the moment that is crappy, you're like, this is the worst ever. And I don't understand why I'm going through it. And 10 years later, you're like, Oh, I needed to go through that to become this person in these mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. And it's the same thing when it comes to our education. Like mm-hmm. it seems completely pointless to be learning something that's not applicable to what's in front of you. But years later, you're like, Oh, mm-hmm. well, well, that makes sense yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> that was something like stage theory. Maybe not even mm-hmm. many years later. Right. You, know, you take, um, you know, in our, in our program, we do human growth development. It's a second year course. Mm-hmm. And then by that time, they're already seeing clients. So you can already start to kind of explore, oh, here's this, you know, 17-year-old. Here's this 30-year-old. Here's this 52-year-old. Uh, where are they in this or that stage? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I do find, and I'm thinking of Eric's stage in particular, uh, it helps to 
develop a little bit of empathy for, for a person. So, you know, if I'm working with, you know, a 14-year-old, I can know, I can take a good guess anyway. Okay, so they're probably, you know, trying to figure out their, their identity concept in the community and, and what's going on, you know working with somebody in their, you know, late 20s thinking, okay, so probably, like, um, probably, you know, pending some factors, you know, intimate relationships are going to be a really, you know, hot item for this person, uh, which tends to tends to be the case. Um, you know, th- th- things like that. So so the, the applicability isn't necessarily that far off uh, if you're just wanting to get a little bit more context understanding for the person. Mm-hmm. So... I am interested in talking a little bit about uh, Eric Erickson's stages of psychosocial development in particular. Uh, and so, again, framing this discussion, so um, Erickson uh, was a um, straight, cisgendered, white male, um, you know, European origin, um, and the, wrote his stages from, from his perspective. And so, and so then, 2017, I have the uh, unique opportunity of teaching his series to a class of, of all women, um, <laughs> which has been Fun. excellent and enlightening and uh, challenging for me in some good ways because it's making me rethink some things that I, again, me and my male privilege, I, I would take for granted. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I look at Erickson's age and I'm like, yeah, sure, of course, because I'm a little bit like him, um, a little bit. <clears throat> so, question on the table then is. Um, what, what, what do we think about Erickson stages? Um, what, what is their use? What is their discontinued use? Uh, should we continue teaching his stages? Uh, if we sh- and if we should, um, what modifications, disclaimers should we throw out? Um, what, what, what do you think? I think, well, as I said before, I think, I think that we're teaching. I think that they've already changed. I'm I'm not sure who it was. I think it may have been was it was it one of Erickson's kids that changed his own theory? Uh but they added a stage. Somebody added a stage later. Mm, his wife, I think. John his Harrison. wife. Yeah. Okay. Um so they change. Uh, perhaps potentially even in his own lifetime they change. Um they don't naturally always line up. Um if you're working in counseling and you're working with dysfunction, then you're more likely to see dysfunction than you are function. So they're not necessarily going to line up in your office either. Mm-hmm. So anything that we have as far as saying this is health, well, we're not likely to see that anyways. Uh, so it is, at the very least, um, perhaps a roadmap that we can try to judge um, some reference point mm-hmm. loosely, mm-hmm. perhaps. <laughs> loosely, perhaps. Uh, but as you said early in the beginning of the podcast, that... Um, trying to become what we would be without the dysfunction is not always an option. In fact, I would say it's never an option. We don't get to go and become untraumatized. Mm-hmm. We get to process through that trauma and, and then exist through that trauma um, without all the dysfunctions that we used to have around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't get to be without it. Or we don't get to have existed without it. Um, and I don't think that developmentally the story is any different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we don't get to go and become like, now I've cleared, you know, my trust versus mistrust. And I've also cleared my, um, you know, <laughs> uh, intimacy versus isolation. And so now I'm, now I'm on track, uh, maybe, but, uh, it's going to look different for you than it would be someone else. Yeah. Um, and so I'm okay with it not lining up because I don't think it ever was going to for, for people who are seeking out counseling. Most of them are going to fit, anyways. Mm-hmm. But that feels okay. 
Yeah. No, I think that's pretty spot on that I think everyone you work with in some dynamic is not going to fit the mold of normal because of the fact that they've experienced trauma, they've experienced specific losses. I think there's also a dynamic that when it comes to relationships, I think that tends to throw off a lot of his stages as well because you may get the basics of trust versus mistrust, but when infidelity comes into a relationship, that's Mm. very earth-shattering for a lot of people, and you then have to revisit what seems like something we should have already resolved, or maybe we did resolve at Mm. some point. Um, And I think that is another caveat to his stages is that like they're they're are things that can happen to us or happen in our lives that kind of shake the foundation of what maybe we had at one point, especially in early development versus in adult development. There are some pretty drastic experiences we can have that can throw off the things we've learned. Or if they weren't there to begin with, then we're like, I didn't have the skills and now I don't even know what that's supposed to look like because I've experienced the exact opposite of what it should be. And I put quotes around yeah. that one too. Just speculating, would it would yeah. we agree on a consensus that we are misusing some of these developmental theories when we are using them to invalidate or not normalize our clients? Yes. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I would agree with that. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I stole from both of you to put that together. So yeah. I think, hey. <laughs> the team effort. Like, here. Whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> because because again. So like, oh, you, you look abnormally developmentally in this direction. Like, mm-hmm. There's a number of ways that you could take this in the wrong way, that people might not naturally fit it and still be maybe within some sort of health based on their cultural mm-hmm. development. Mm-hmm. Um, then if we're using to invalidate them mm-hmm. uh, or pathologize them, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and we didn't, we didn't appropriately fill that out or, or work through that with them mm-hmm. and, and get to know them, Mm-hmm. Um, or be culturally sensitive or understand what that was for them before we jumped to conclusions and started making statements, mm-hmm. um, then we misuse the tool. Yeah. Yeah. Be, yeah. Misusing it to say these stages are our benchmark for who's the in crowd, who's the out crowd. Yeah. Who are the normals <laughs> and the abnormals. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I think, too, I was thinking about what you were saying, Katie, of like recognizing it's their... They are more nonlinear than I think he might have planned for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we look at them, it's here, here's a rigid schedule with rigid milestones that can be really constricting um, mm-hmm. and can be confusing, if not harmful. But if you recognize, hey, here's, you know, here's some, here's some stages, some overlapping phases that, mm-hmm. you know, may happen out of order, that may over, overlap for sure, uh, may be happening together um, and, you know, compound upon each other. Yeah, that that seems to make a little bit more sense. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's interesting. Just this is an offshoot kind of where my brain's going. Um, is that I think there is a dynamic of where our culture pushes for certain stages to happen. I think is really grounded in some of those theories and in Erickson himself mm-hmm. and those type of things because it's stuff that I mean you could go to any school. It doesn't have to be getting a psychology degree and you're going to take an intro to psych class and you're probably going to go over Erickson stages. And so on some level, I think our culture kind of pushes for, well, by this time you should resolve this thing and you should, you should have a job by the time you're this age or not live in your parents' basement (laughs) or be married or have kids by this specific stage. And I think that's definitely the more I work with people who are on the, 
older ages of millennials, there is this conundrum of like, they haven't worked it all out by the time they're 30. And so 30 is this terrifying number because they're not married. They're not in a significant relationship. They don't have a degree and a job and they are living with a group of other people in that same stage in a house and they feel not normal. They feel like there is something wrong with them and that's why they seek out canceling. And I'm like, actually like everybody around you is at that same stage because (laughs) that's no longer that age dynamic is no longer where our culture is. And there are a lot of reasons that we could probably delve into about Mm -hmm. why that's where we're currently at in our culture. But regardless of why we're there. And right. so mm-hmm. what does it look like to help people feel as though they are both valid for the stage of life they're in, even if that is maybe off of the normal scale. And also what, well, where is your life headed? What do, do you actually want to have a baby and be married? Mm-hmm. Or are you actually more of the like stay at home with your cat type and yeah. that's fine or go travel or whatever else it is. I think that's a significant critique I would launch against mm-hmm. uh, Erickson and is him and Freud both, I think. And, you know, Freud was one of his influences for sure. But they, their concept of what is the good life Mm -hmm. uh, Mm. and what is is the good life, what is a successful life. And it it is very much Mm -hmm. a a heteronormative, you know, man, you know, marries woman, probably marries Mm -hmm. and reproduces uh, biologically. And, you know, in an assumed context of probably works a meaningful job for, you He's know, a doctor. Multiple um, decades. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Freud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, nothing wrong with that by any mm-hmm. means. But that's very much not the culture. You know, there's, mm-hmm. you know, a much higher rate of people, you know, not getting married as well, um, not getting, you know, legally married, as well as maybe living together, cohabitating, but not having kids, at least not biologically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, non-binary relationships uh, and you know polyamorous relationships and and then just people who don't do relationship uh, or don't do kids or like you're like you're saying Katie like there's the more millennial trend of like I get to be late twenties early thirties and even if I have finished school which happens but sometimes not um, I don't really know what I'm going to do with my life and I'm not really sure who I am and I. I had this kind of diffuse sense of having grown up, mm-hmm. um, which could be another great episode if we talk about like initiation rights right. and like mm-hmm. you know coming of age. Mm-hmm. That would be a fascinating one that I would have a lot to contribute to. Okay, we'll do that sometime. <laughs> yeah. um, one of the other, I guess one. Of the, um, so we, we can critique some things around like the you know identity versus role confusion stage and the intimacy versus isolation stage and the you know generativity stagnation stage. Um, but I'm kind of thinking about like a, a critique of like the fundamental, you know, trust versus mistrust. Um, he, um, the whole, the whole stage theory starts on this foundation that uh, ideally a kid learns, um, by the time two that the world is trustworthy, that, um, that, it, that it's safe and reliable and predictable. And they do this from their caregivers, mm-hmm. um, which is great. And when that sense of trust is, is there, you know, it tends to be healthier, but then, um, I'm also mar- remarking at like the level of privilege with which he would, he would write that. You know, again, him being you know a straight cisgendered white male, um, he's at the top of the food chain. There, unless he you know unless he like puts himself in harm's way, there's very little that will actually legitimately threaten him. Uh, and you know, sim- similar today, you know, uh, you know, certain people are at the top of the social food chain, and others not so much. And so if you like 
even this whole assumption that the world is safe, there, there's problems with that. Mm-hmm. Um, because let's face it, for some people it's not. Mm-hmm. Yes. I agree. (laughs) Yeah, I think, and I think the hard part of cutting that off at such a young age is trauma. Like a lot of people won't experience sexual trauma until they're four, five, eight, ten, whatever it is, or even into adulthood, as well as other forms of trauma. And so I think the hard part is that um, it's a concept of safety in your world can vastly be shifted at any stage in the game. Mm -hmm. And so I think, yes, there is some validity of like, oh, can I trust my parents to provide protection for me and all of those things? But again, if it's a family incestual situation, then Mm -hmm. automatically parents are like no longer in a place of you were able to protect me, even if they theoretically did everything they could, Mm -hmm. that automatically comes into a trauma perspective. And so I think there's a dynamic of that that takes place on top of the fact that for some people, and I would say women included, there's a dynamic of, well, the world is unsafe. Like I grew up in a relatively safe home, which relatively, uh, but that like my parents didn't abuse me. They were loving and caring and they, they were safe in and of themselves. But when I leave my home, if I'm walking down the road, I, I'm constantly looking at who outside of my window who's walking by is this somebody that I could trust or not trust and it's just because I'm a woman and there's a dynamic that comes with that and my husband and I have this conversation all the time because he's like oh I wouldn't have even thought of that and, he, mm-hmm. and recognizes right. his privilege in that and then on top of that when you're adding in diversity racial issues gender issues mm-hmm. um, sexual identity all of the things that people get placed into situations or get harassed in situations or get abused in situations or are just looked down upon in situations, all of that becomes a huge dynamic of where is it getting thrown off when it comes to safety in our world and who can you trust, who can't you trust, and all of those lovely identity-forming pieces as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, in the early stages, like zero to four, a lot of that just comes from Straight mom. Straight mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's Just where you get it. Mom. Yeah. Literally, Intachment. cortisol, it goes through the uh, placenta barrier mm-hmm. and the breast milk. So mom's stress is baby stress. Yep. Yeah. Straight into their system. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole other discussion. Uh, we should <laughs> yeah. have a discussion, though. Someday. Yeah. So we are running out of time for this episode, mm-hmm. but I want to get a, get a quick consensus based on our conversations and our whole context of thinking. So uh, Erickson Sages, would you say yes, keep, no, discard, or heavily modify, or some other? Right? Heavily disclaim. I'd probably keep all of them and heavily disclaim all of them. Yeah. Because yeah. mm-hmm. uh, they said you don't know, like, we, we just we, like the people who changed Mm-hmm. you know, uh, the previous stages or, or theories or built on somebody else's or just springboarded into another one did so because they learned the previous mm-hmm. stages and said, that's not right. Well, mm-hmm. if we don't learn them, then we got into the springboard off of, so what a waste. Yeah. Uh, so let's just learn them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, you don't like them. That's awesome. Yeah. More power to you. If you can mm-hmm. modify it, that's even better. Yeah. Um, but let's still learn them. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can disagree with them by all means. I like that. Yeah. Um, but, but learn them. Yeah. 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 I would say the same that definitely learning them and, and having those conversations, if there is space in classroom settings or otherwise to say like, what do we think about this? Where, where would we challenge it based on where we're at in our own knowledge of humans and of development and have those opportunities to have those conversations and add disclaimers. But I think, 
yes, always teach what has been there because mm-hmm. then we know what's going down mm-hmm. and right. how to add to it. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a similar thing. Say yes, teach them. If for no other reason than to have a reference point by which to compare your experience, your culture to to, to his. Mm-hmm. Um, he's very much, again, you know, straight white male, you know, in his case, um, Western culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can be in relationship to that. Either, yes, that is my experience or no, that was absolutely not my experience. But having this specific experience put out there, you at least have a reference point by which to kind of establish what yours is, whether it's the mm-hmm. same or different. And so, mm-hmm. yes, heavily disclaim, you know, open it to lots of critique because there's lots of valid critiques. But as a, as a reference point anyway, I, I find a lot of use mm-hmm. for the stages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For an example, by the way, uh, my own mother wrote a book on Kohlberg's and yes, changed she did. it. Uh, called Parenting the Heart of Your Child, which is basically a book about me. That's a little awkward. Um, But it is about Kohlberg's theory. She just changes it. And Mm -hmm. if you compare her version of Kohlberg's to Kohlberg's, you'll realize, like, oh, Kohlberg's does really kind of feel like pre-World War II. Uh, There's some problems here, or around the World War II era, but there's some changes in in, uh, one of the theories is flipped, and you go, oh, it's way better, and it's okay. it's defined differently. It just sounds better to us in our democratic republic state. Okay. Uh, and our, uh, for some reason, it's hard to imagine that Kohlberg thought that his theory was accurate, but maybe in his mm-hmm. culture and time, it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, anyways, something for another day. Okay. Fun fact: yeah. I read that when I was in undergrad because Awkward. I was studying. Yeah. <laughs> right? It was like before I had even met her, and right. it right. was like because I used it in my research for human growth and development yeah. in undergrad. By the way, the book is it. full of lots and lots of awkward stories, to which she says, "But I don't name you guys. Yes, but you have three kids, and you refer to your oldest, youngest, and middle." <laughs> Deduction powers. If it's any consolation, I don't remember anything no, other than the fact that I thought it was interesting. It's all wrong. I, I know <laughs> but now I'm going to go read it. I've never read this book, so now I know what I'm going to read next. But yeah, okay. since, since you brought, what have since, I done? Since, since, we, since you love your mother. <laughs> Uh, who's your mom? What's the book? And where can reader or listeners find it? Uh, Diane Moore, uh, Parenting the Heart of Your Child. Uh, it's a book on moral development and uh, parenting and Kohlberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably can find it on Amazon. I think I've got like 600 copies in my in my uh, office somewhere, Ooh. some storage <laughs> room. So you can always contact me, Joshua Moore. You can look me up. At, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm licensed in Washington. I'm sure you can find me. Okay. <laughs> we'll, put on, we'll put it on the website. But anyway, uh, Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Katie, for great thoughts. Please be sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. We love your feedback, and let's keep the conversation going. Follow Smart Council on Facebook at Smart Council Podcast, on Twitter at Smart Council 601, and you can email us your questions and comments and feedback at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. Joshua Moore can be found on the web at neurofeedbackcare.com and Reese Basimio can be found on the web at newpatterncounseling.com. Our theme music is by Nate Botsford. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. This episode was mastered by Julie Patterson. Smart Council has been produced by Reese Basimio and Joshua Moore.